An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Monday, December 18th. Coming at you from my holiday undisclosed bunker location. If I sound a little different today, left my recording equipment in LA. Uh, so if I sound a little muffled, that's the reason. Last week, we did the flexes of the year. Success stories in Hollywood. This week, it's the debacles. And arguably, this entire year was a debacle for most in Hollywood. A giant come down from the content bubble of the past decade. The companies that produce mass entertainment are, for the most part, hurting right now, figuring out how to cut costs, lay people off, respond to a worsening economic climate, and find a business model in streaming that actually makes sense. But some have really set themselves apart as the debacles of the year. It's a distinguished group. And I'm going to get into it in two parts. Today with Lucas Shaw, we're going over the bomb of the year, the biggest loser of the year, executive edition, and the under-discussed disaster of the year. And then tomorrow we'll be back and talk about who's on the hot seat and the overall biggest debacle with the appropriate drum roll from Craig. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw. We're going to do today the debacles of the year. Last week, we had the flexes. That was somewhat positive. Next week, we're going to do some awards, year-end awards, which will be both positive and negative. But today, the episode that everybody loves to hate, the debacles of the year. Lucas, you ready? Kimberlyn, I am so ready. (laughs) I am on my wife's iPad recording this. So, yeah. Um, all right. So first, let's go to Bomb of the Year. And this is a movie. I'm going to I'll start with mine. This is a movie that probably didn't lose the most money this year, but is indicative of a bunch of trends in Hollywood that are extremely troubling trends. And the movie is called Amsterdam. If you don't remember it, it was a David O. Russell movie that featured about 10, 15 different stars, everyone from Christian Bale to Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Taylor Swift was in this thing, cost $80 million, made $14 million domestic, 
uh, 31 million worldwide, and is a was supposed to be a awards style awards contender movie, and absolutely flamed out. And this is a trend. This is something where the awards movies that are being unleashed on theaters right now, for the most part, with rare exceptions, are not finding audiences in movie in theaters. And my question is how long this is going to keep going, where these studios are just going to line these planes up and try to land them one after another, and they are crashing and burning. So my bomb of the year is Amsterdam. It was a spectacular failure. But my problem with it as the biggest bomb of the year in this trend is I feel like we have some of these star-studded awards bait movies that fail every year. Like one, nobody thought, as best I could tell, nobody thought this movie was any good. There was very limited marketing about it. It didn't seem like anyone knew it was coming out. And so while it is a disaster and it does tie into this sort of what's happening with awards movies and what's happening with dramas, it just feels like a weird one to me because it didn't, it, it it wasn't even if it even if it had made money, it wasn't going to be up for any awards because nobody thought it was good. And I feel like again, we have some I mean, some of these movies. We were talking about one in the 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 before taping. We were talking about White Noise, which we won't get box office for because it's a Netflix movie, but it's another one of these overpriced, star-driven drama or dramedies uh that there really isn't an audience for. Yet at least White Noise can be written off as a Netflix vanity project where they just want to be in the Noah Baumbach business. And at least until this year, money didn't really matter for Netflix. Now, you could argue that money didn't really matter for the Amsterdam financier, Arnon Milchin, who is a billionaire and has a deal the, the, and just produces what he wants. And then Fox and now Disney will release it. But there's this another trend going on here. If we look pretty closely at the movies that Disney has released that it got in the Fox transaction, meaning movies that were in development or were from deals that were at Fox that Disney took over when they bought Fox. Um, it's a lot of bombs. One I mean, disaster have, after another. I talk to people yeah. at Disney who just say like, oh yeah, that's a Fox movie, meaning it's not <laughs> something that they expect to make money. Everything from New Mutants to The Last Duel, that Matt Damon, Ben Affleck movie, that was a Fox movie. Uh, Ron's Gone Wrong, which was a really terrible animated film uh, that my kid really asked us to turn off. Um, then, you know, West Side Story, even the Spielberg movie, that was a Fox movie that Disney took over and did not do well. So it's it's a, an interesting trend here that Disney is kind of stuck with these movies. And I think and I do think Amsterdam was a awards style movie up until the critics saw it. Yeah. And then that kind of torpedoed it. Similar with White Noise. I mean, Netflix had every intention of White Noise being their big awards movie this year. They took it to Telluride. It did not play well. And all of a sudden, it's not a contender. Same with Bardo, the Inaritu movie that Netflix had really high hopes for this award season. Very expensive, personal, auteur-driven movie that did not perform with critics. He even cut the movie by 20 minutes in an attempt to make critics like it. And they still didn't like it. And it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, these movies are just not landing like they once did. Yeah. Well, so even though that's technically a Fox movie, it was distributed by Disney. And my choice uh, for this category is also a Disney movie uh, that also ties into uh, sort of into another trend. Um, and, and mine is Lightyear, um, which two, re two reasons. One is that Toy Story is 
the franchise that should just never fail. I mean, it's been the most bankable animated franchise for Disney just about or for, through Pixar. You know, the, the first one made almost $400 million. The second one made almost $500 million. The last two made 1.1 each. This one made just $226 million, far and away the worst in the franchise. Um, you know, Disney lost a ton of money on it. And it was also sort of a sign of the challenges that Disney's been having this year with their animated and kids' movies in general. You could have done Strange World, which was was just out. Yeah, why a, did you pick Lightyear, not Strange World? Because because it's tied into Toy Story. And the fact that they took this beloved franchise and screwed up the movie so badly that even people at kind of to your point, people at Disney would say, Yeah, this wasn't a this this was just not a good movie. That's just to me, it's it's pretty embarrassing. Um, I mean, you know what I saw? It's not a bad movie. It's just a total misfire on what people want out of a Toy Story movie. I mean, the whole point of Toy Story was that it's fun and that the Lightyear character is kind of a blowhard and we're laughing at him. And they took everything we liked about the Lightyear character and turned it into this super earnest action hero. And that's not what people want. The movie has, other than the character, it has no connection to Toy Story. And like my kid was excited because it was a Toy Story movie and he saw it. He's like, it's fine, but it's just like, that's not what people wanted. This, this should have been a, you know, half the budget direct to video type movie. They went big and they went theatrical with it. And it was a, it was a debacle. I I would actually blame the, uh, the distribution decision. This should have been a Disney plus exclusive. I don't know. I don't know if that saves it. It was, yeah, and it was like a two hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, um, same with Strange World. I mean, I of those movies, I would think I think Strange World is the biggest debacle of the year, just money wise, because I, I don't understand it. But it costs like two hundred million dollars. This movie, it looks like a '90s style cheapo animation movie, but it it had big names in it, Jake Gyllenhaal and a bunch of stars in it, and that movie absolutely flopped at the box office. So I, I would yeah. pick I, I, thought about, I thought about both, but again, the Toy Story part of it just made me want to do, do Lightyear. Yeah, I mean, the larger debacle of the year candidate would be Disney Animation. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but uh, between, you know, their best movie of the year was probably Turning Red, and that went straight to Disney Plus. Probably could have done significant business in, in the box office if they had held it a little bit longer. Um, and then to have two massive bombs like that, that's just not very Disney-like. Yeah. All right. We are going to move on now to Biggest Loser. I'll let you take this one. I'll let you take the, the first crack of this. I mean, this one's, we got to be in agreement on this one, right? It's got to be Chapek. Yeah, the disposed Bob, I think, does get this honor. Now, I have another one, but you you make the argument for, for the Bob. I mean, look, he... Uh... He failed in almost every dimension during the year as the the CEO of of the biggest entertainment company on earth. He he was tested early with kind of a a, a social flare up with his workers with the "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida. He had the wrong response at first, which was to completely minimize it and dismiss it. Then he basically played into Ron DeSantis's hand. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Uh, that alienates a ton of his staff. It just makes him look weak. It causes, it hurts Disney's relationship in Florida where it has a ton of business. Um, you know, the the continued decline of pay TV, not really his fault, but something that he struggled, I think, to communicate around. Um, 
the the firing of Peter Rice and how weirdly that was handled, and again alienating a ton of that in that the entertainment community spillover from the Scarlett Johansson last year, his that the earnings call that is that will now live in infamy, which seemed to be the ultimate uh, cause of his downfall and him not realizing what Wall Street and what his company needed to hear about the company's problems, um, and just the kind of honestly the embarrassment. Uh, of having your previous boss, the guy who supposedly picked you for this job, come back and oust you, um, and you know, lo- losing your job in the span of you know twenty four to seventy two hours without really realizing what's happening to you until it's happened. Yeah, to um, me, that is the biggest loser qualification. This is a guy whose contract was renewed this summer and had a big vote of confidence, unanimous board statement. We love this guy. Cut to November, he's out. Replaced by his predecessor, knifed in the back by his CFO. We've since learned that Christine McCarthy was one of the key voices going to the board saying, we've lost confidence in this guy. Um, All sorts of minor details have come out about how he had alienated people and people were afraid that the head of the Parks Division or the head of the movie studio were going to quit. This is He has not told his story yet. I'm looking forward to the day when he, he can do an interview or explain his perspective on all this. Do you think he bothers to do that? Oh, sure. I think he will. Because he'll resurface. He'll get another job somewhere and he'll, he'll talk about it. Um, yeah. I mean, who knows what his non-disparagement will be. A lot of these guys, when they leave these companies, you know, they're, we haven't seen what his payout is yet. That's going to be we one of the some, big news We saw items. some of it, I thought. Some of, it, some of it has come out, but we have not seen the full payout that the the go away money yeah and uh that will come out next year it you know you could make the argument that the biggest loser here is the disney board of directors which really looks horrible here i mean the fact that they vouched for this guy and then fired him three months later um doesn't look great this is a board that has made a number of questionable decisions so we'll see what happens there but um my only other candidate for biggest loser is jason kylar I know most of this stuff happened last year where the company Warner Media that he was running and he'd been running for a little over a year and change um, had all of a sudden they decided to sell the company out from under him. But if you look at what happened this year when the new regime at Warner Brothers Discovery took over, they have reversed or altered almost every single decision that Jason Kylar made when he was running these assets. Everything from betting their chips on theatrical when Kyler was an all-in on streaming guy to, you know, taking stuff off of HBO Max uh, when Kyler was a, you know, we got to go all in and put every single thing we have on the streamer um, to CNN Plus. I mean, this was, you know, him, he and Jeff Zucker uh, put this plan in place to launch CNN Plus. The first thing Zaslav did when he took over was to kill CNN Plus. So if you're looking at biggest losers of the year, Jason Kylar Kylar is up there. Not to mention that the entire stock market has turned on the model that Kylar championed. So even if he was in this job, he would be under huge fire right now because his plan would likely be rejected by the market. So uh, I I think he's a a candidate there. I I thought about Jason. The, The problem I have with it, I guess, is twofold. One is when the there was a changing of the guard at the company, it was sort of obvious that he was going to leave. So him losing his job, not really a, a surprise. Um, and I think that has more to do with the AT&T corporate situation than whatever it was that he was doing at Warner Media. 
And then on top of that, it's like not really clear that his strategy was wrong and the people who are now in have the right strategy because the current strategy is mostly let's save as much money as possible and try to placate Wall Street. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I, you're right that he would have been under tremendous pressure. I also think that, um, you know, they, they would have managed to communicate the growth in streaming in a different way and that people have, their, have sort of revised history and made it seem like the all movies go to streaming strategy was going to remain in place when I think he would have seen the biggest movies go theatrical as they are now. But there's no question that, that Zaslav has repudiated pretty much everything that he's done and that can't feel great if you're Jason Kyler. And honestly, you, you say they're, they're just trying to save money. I, I also think that the new regime is trying to generate money wherever they can. And that is a big 180 from what Kylar was doing, where he was willing to take the hit financially if it meant growing streaming subscribers. And that, I think, is the, is the big change that we've seen. 100%. It's, it's both saving money and being, being more flexible with sort of traditional entertainment ways of making money, licensing things to third parties and the deal they did with Amazon and all this other stuff. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, let's go to under-discussed disaster. You can have the first one on this too. Mine is a little a little out of left field, but I'm going with all of the celebrity crypto endorsements and NFT Oh, that's projects. a good one. So, you know, you had at the top of the year, there was all this enthusiasm around cryptocurrencies, NFTs, Web3. These aren't all the same thing, but they all sort of got grouped into this kind of future of the internet, future of culture, new technology. And when the price of cryptocurrencies crashed, everybody looked terrible. You had all, but but prior to it, you had all these celebrities, you know, Matt Damon, Tom Brady, on and on and on, get millions of dollars uh, to promote different types of cryptocurrencies or companies associated with cryptocurrencies. None of these, it 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 lent a kind of a patina of legitimacy to these companies, even though I don't, I think most of the people who vouched for them had no idea if it was going to work, no real skin in the game. All they got was paid promotion, but they were paying, being paid to promote something that was inherently very risky and cost some people a fair amount of money. And so I, this whole thing is icky. And that, so for me, I feel like we haven't spent enough time discussing it, maybe because we don't expect much better out of these people, maybe because the ultimate losers in the crypto crash are people who had money to spend anyways, and it hasn't hit the common person. But for me, that's the sort of under-discussed mess of the year. I think it has hit the common person. We They just don't talk about it because they're embarrassed by it them putting their money in all this stuff. Um, there's litigation now, 
Mm-hmm. And some of these disgruntled shareholders and, and investors are suing. I don't know how far... I read the complaint in one of the bigger cases. I don't know how far this is going to go. Um, I think it will depend on whether these were just paid endorsers or whether they actually had more skin in the game and were, were might potentially be fiduciaries here. Yeah. Um, the one that the one that I think is the most interesting case is this litigation against Jimmy Fallon, among others, uh, for promoting board ape, like these board ape uh, NFTs, and and it's slightly different than crypto. But Fallon didn't disclose on the air when he was promoting these board ape when he probably should have. Uh, at least that's the allegation in the complaint. And there could be some FTC issues when you're not supposed to be a paid pitch person for a product when you are uh, when you're talking it up on the broad on the on the publicly owned broadcast air. So if that becomes a thing, I, I could see that settling for a number. Yeah, that the the board ape suit is one that was definitely making the rounds last week, and I probably contribute that with making me think of this one. But uh, I, I, it, it just, yeah, I, I think it will get more attention as there are more lawsuits. And certainly if you see a name like Jimmy Fallon suddenly owing a bunch of money or facing any real consequences. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's go, let's go to my under-discussed disaster. And I don't know if it's a disaster per se yet, but it's getting there. And I'm going to talk about the acquisition of MGM. <laughs> by Amazon. Oh, is this your debacle of the year? No, no, not at all. I thought about it, but I sorry, proceed with your your uh your speech. And we've talked about this a little bit on the show. You know, the the fact that Amazon went after this legacy studio and decided that it was worth eight and some billion dollars to own the MGM library and the right to make James Bond movies might have sounded great on paper. And Mike Hopkins, the executive that championed this deal at Amazon, um, I think sold it to Seattle on the basis of owning Bond, owning this great library, and being able to supercharge the interface. Amazon hopes that Amazon Prime Video becomes the gate through which all content is accessed on the internet someday. Uh, and that's a huge deal if they can do that. And they said, okay, we can buy, buy all these titles in the MGM library and we can have the right to make Bond movies. The problem, and we're seeing this play out, is that there are so many encumbrances on this library. Yes, you have the right to distribute Bond movies, but you don't make the Bond movies. The Broccoli family makes the Bond, Bond movies and they decide when you make a Bond movie and they decide that they have not wanted to do a television show or other spinoffs. That's their prerogative and they don't really care what Amazon thinks, at least not so far. The library also has huge encumbrances. Most Many of the titles have been licensed elsewhere or are uh, you know, tied up in rights problems because heirs of so-and-so have the, uh, the approval over whether there's a remake. Many of these movies have already been remade and remade again. So the value has gone down there. It's not a, it's not a library without value. It's still pretty valuable. There's some great titles in there. But I think Amazon is having real second thoughts about paying this price for the MGM library. They also have not found anyone to run the MGM studio and make all of these movies that they say they're going to make for theaters in the future. So that's been a problem, not to mention the fact that they're trying to integrate MGM into Amazon, a famously 
difficult culture, uh, that we don't know how it's going to go. So I just feel like this is borderline disaster and we're not talking enough about it. It's, it is. And I think the only reason for it, well, one of the big reasons for it is because Amazon is so big and the studio itself already feels a little bit like a vanity project that like blowing some acquisition for it, it's just not clear what the stakes are um, and how much it really damages Amazon. But there's no question that they were the first big tech company to go out and actually buy a Hollywood studio and it looks like a mess. Um, and if you, if you, all the people who are trying to say that the MG, the the deal was overvalued when it happened, that they couldn't believe that Amazon paid eight and a half billion dollars to this thing, are looking very correct right now. Um, because even even without the encumbrances, it's not clear how valuable that library is. And the other one of the other reasons they supposedly bought the company, which were all these experienced execs they had, you know, Mark Burnett on the TV side, Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi on the film side left within a few months yeah and they've got to find somebody to run this they made the decision to put all of the film executives under jennifer sulky who is a very experienced television executive less experienced on the film side that's being generous Um, well we're we're going to (laughs) we're going to see how who takes that job and how they organize things uh, and whether they actually ramp up to these supposed eight to 12 movies for theaters every year that they're supposed to be making. Yeah. All right. That is the debacles of the year. Lucas, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. Okay. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, you see the avatar numbers? Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of the conversation right now around like friends of mine is that avatar is underperforming, but a lot of people don't know that this movie succeeds because of how long it can last in theaters. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to minimize that. I, I think Disney is a little disappointed. It did 135 million opening weekend in the US and domestically, then it did another 300 overseas. It did about 57 million in China, which is not what they wanted. None of these numbers are what Disney wanted out of this movie. But the thinking is, is that if it plays anything like the first, it opened to 70 something million that it's going to play throughout the year and into January and into, you know, beyond if they are successful. So my prediction today is that I think despite the lackluster or disappointing opening, that Avatar will certainly be the top movie of 2022. It's got to get to 1.5 to beat Top Gun Maverick. Remember, Spider-Man No Way Home came out last year, actually. And I think it'll beat Top Gun Maverick. I actually think it'll still get close to 2 billion um, if it plays like the previous one did, which all indications from the numbers we've seen and the IMAX screenings and the reservations for next week, it is playing that way. The, the one wild card here is that people follow box office a little bit more closely these days than they did in 2009. I mean, with social media and you know the fact that your friend group knew that Avatar didn't open that well I think does have an impact. I, I do think there's a risk that without the hoopla associated with a top movie that everyone's excited about and is outperforming expectations, there is a kind of casual viewer or someone who may not be that interested, but will go to see something just because of all the hoopla. That person may choose not to see Avatar 2 because it's perceived as not living up to financial expectations. 
It does have a different feel than the Top Gun Maverick word of mouth where everybody was telling their friends and family, you have to go see this movie. With Avatar, it feels like more of an assignment because of its length, because of how long it's been since the first one came out. Top Gun felt like more of a moment. True, but the cinema score on it was an A. So people who did see it this past weekend liked it. Including me. It's just a harder sell, I think. Maybe, yeah. Uh, but I also think that that means that there's a the longer tail. People aren't necessarily going to rush out right when they have the opportunity to see it. But when you are facing down the prospect of hanging with your family that you may not want to talk to that much, <laughs> three and a half hours in the movie theater is the longer, not the better. a bad proposition. Yeah, the longer the better. When's the seven-hour cut? The, the 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 Christmas with the family cut coming out. Yeah, can we do a double feature with Babylon after? <laughs> exactly. The I will not discuss anything with my family double feature. Is the two billion less impressive this time around because of the influx of 3D ticket sales? Uh no. I mean two billion I think would be impressive for this movie, just given, you know, that uh, what are what are there five movies that have ever gotten to two billion? Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any shame in not breaking the record for the biggest movie of all time with this movie. But two billion is the only reason we're talking about it is because Cameron himself, Jim Cameron, said it's got to be up there with the most expensive, the most the highest grossing movies of all time in order to break even. Now he wasn't really correct there. I mean, most of the financial people I've talked to said that if it gets in the low, you know, one point three, one point four, it'll be a profitable movie but he's talking about showing the appetite for avatar three four and five justifying all the sequels yeah exactly if it sputters to a billion and gets to 1.2 1.3 that doesn't indicate strong demand for more avatars and that's what they're really looking at here yeah all right that's the show for today uh, we will be back tomorrow with more of the debacles of the year. I want to thank Luke Shaw. I want to thank Chris Craig Horbeck. And I want to thank you. See you tomorrow. 